I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Very pleased today to be joined by Ron Adner. Welcome, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Mark. Ron is a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business in Dartmouth. He has written many business books. His previous one was The Wide Lens, about successful innovators and what others miss. And he's just published another book, a very interesting book, about, it seems to me, ecosystems and disruption called Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. So thanks for discussing your new book with me, Ron, and congratulations. Thanks again. So let's start off with the title of your book, Winning the Right Game, Winning the Wrong Game. What does it mean to win the wrong game? What the title is supposed to be evoking is that, you know, if you go back to the 1990s, right, where Jack Welch was running GE better than any CEO had been seen as running a company before, he wrote a great book called Winning. And in an industry world, that was the story. Can you win? Can you reduce cost? Can you increase quality better than anyone else? What this title is supposed to evoke is that, one, we are in a more complicated world because industry boundaries are shifting. And so now it's no longer about winning, but there is a very real possibility that because other people are playing different games than you are, that there's greater choice. And if you make the wrong choice in what you're trying to go after, winning can feel the same as losing, right? And that's kind of where the kickoff for the book and also the the kickoff example for the book comes from. Yeah, let's, let's go to the kickoff example. The failure of Kodak is much discussed, and and you have a particular take on that. What's your interpretation of what really went wrong with Kodak, and what do you want to emphasize about your account? Well, so for me, the most interesting thing about Kodak's failure is how massively overstudied it's been, and at the same time, how massively misunderstood the causality has been, right? So long story short, everybody talks about Kodak as having had too slow a response to an organization, they invent the digital future, and then they can't get out of the chemical world in which they were used to making their profits. That's the standard story. And that's a story that's been told for the 10 years since its bankruptcy. And I think it was very, very clear, according to the evidence that I show in the book, Kodak actually goes through a massively successful transformation through the 2000s. They become the the number one seller of digital cameras in the U.S. They become a big contender in printers. They embrace the digital future and they try to become the next HP. And they actually succeed in this. The thing that goes wrong for them, the reason they do go bankrupt, is because just as they manage the transition to digital printing, digital viewing upends digital printing. So the game they were trying to win and, and, and what all the experts were focusing on was can you change from analog printing to digital printing. And it turns out that winning in digital printing was the wrong game because digital, all forms of printing get disrupted by ubiquitous connected screens. And what the case really should call out for us is one, to reflect back. And you know, the moment I say it, it seems very obvious. And everybody says, oh yeah, of course, of course. And yet for 10 years, the story has been very different. And the advice given on the basis of that story have been so different. And so what Kodak is really supposed to tell us is, wait, there's something else going on and there's a need for a new set of tools for us to understand not to fall into these traps, right? Kodak being the poster child for, it turns out that they lost not because they couldn't win a game, but because they won the wrong game. So before we proceed, we should probably define a few terms because you you have a very 
particular vocabulary used in the book to describe this and other examples. We should probably start with the pivotal term in your book, ecosystem. The term is used very loosely nowadays. What do you mean by a business ecosystem? So when I talk about ecosystems, I mean something very specific. And as you say, it helps to have definitions. And for me, the thing that makes ecosystems specific is that they force us to focus on the structure of interdependence, the structure through which partners align to deliver a value proposition. And so suddenly we can begin to think about not just interdependence, because if you think about an industry, there's a huge amount of interdependence in supply chains. But it's when that interdependence is moving into a new structure in support of a new value proposition, that we start moving into this world where ecosystem thinking becomes relevant. And in some ways, the, the reason that's such an important definition is because it tells you when is it that our industry mindset is the right one to pursue, right? When structure is not being reformed. And when is it that that old mindset is going to lead to blind spots? And that's when we need to put on this ecosystem mindset. A lot of the words that you use in the book contain the word value, you know, value proposition, value elements, value architecture, value inversion, as opposed to a more traditional mantra that talks about industry share and, and scale and capabilities and so on. Could you tell us about your focus on those value words as a way of understanding what's going on in these situations? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. So for me, when I think about ecosystems, the ecosystem is anchored because the ecosystem is the structure of activities to deliver something. It's that something, it's that value proposition in which things get anchored. And by anchoring the strategy discussion in the value trying to be created, we can avoid all kinds of traps that otherwise people who talk about ecosystems fall into, like defining your ecosystem around your firm, right? So anybody who talks about an Apple ecosystem or a Google ecosystem is risking falling into what I call the ecosystem trap, right? Thinking that they're central in all these activities rather than focusing on a value proposition where their role and the structure of the ecosystem to deliver it can be quite different, even if it's them and even the same technology. So let me check that I've, I've understood. I mean, it seems to me that if you have an industry and a product-centric view of the world, you think more about how to play the game rather than which game to play. And in entertaining those new choices about which game, you're saying your guide is to look externally and to think about the, the value delivered to customers and, and use that as a, as a guide as to what the game should be. Would that be a good interpretation? That's fair. I mean, essentially, at the heart of it is, to the point of talking about industries, it means that there's general understanding and convergence about what it is that you're trying to deliver. Right? The value proposition essentially can be almost taken for granted. Okay, we're making cars. And what we focus on is how we compete in the car industry. Oh, who's got the right supply chain? Are you GM? Are you Toyota? What's your activity set? In this moment in time, we're transitioning to a point where it's clear that just talking about the car industry is problematic, right? The mobility value proposition itself is being redefined. Suddenly, there's notions of electrification, of automation, self-driving cars, who's going to be providing the charging networks for doing all this stuff, who's going to be the brains of the automobile. And in this case, what's happening is we're redefining the value proposition that is going to be delivered to the customer. And inevitably, what that means is that the relationships among parties change. And that's when we're forced into this ecosystem mindset. 
So I'm wondering about where planning fits into this, because strategy traditionally was a synonym for planning in many cases. And, you know, one can imagine if one has a fairly stable definition of an industry and a fairly stable architecture, that's relatively planable. You know, I was wondering, thinking about your codec example, and I, I thought it was very, very cogent, but I was wondering how reasonable would it be to assume that we can anticipate that sort of disruption in advance? Because we have a lot of unpredictable things going on, right? We have many possible value games we could be playing. We could have many possible moves by competitors. We can have different constellations of collaborators. So do you relate the codec example in the spirit of that's something we can anticipate and plan? Or is it more of an adaptive philosophy you're suggesting? That's a great question. And I very strongly believe that this this is available for thinking through. This is strategic. If anything, it's more important to be strategic in these contexts than in industry contexts where things are more stable. And, you know, as I lay out in the book, actually, there are some very, very clear indicators that one can use to see the onset of ecosystem disruption, which is distinct from the notion of technology disruption. But what's required is a new set of tools through which to do the strategy process. So I think it's not reasonable to expect better answers using the existing tools. But, you know, the 10-year effort of this book was for me to figure out how I think about this stuff. So what I don't want to pretend, though, is that it's easy. It's not that you can solve these cases without meaningful investment in strategy. No, I think there's a greater call for strategy. And quite frankly, there's at least as big, if not a bigger payoff for the right strategy in this environment than in the more stable environment of industries. So let's go into some of those mental tools, different ways of thinking about these sorts of dynamic ecosystem problems. So one idea you have in the book is that when you're trying to defend your turf as an ecosystem disruptor or incumbent, you're leveraging your partners as a sort of collective shield. You know, it's important how you choose your partners. Tell us a little more about that idea. When people talk about ecosystems, we immediately think about, you know, the giants who are running the world, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles. And that's really great if you're them, right? Part of what prompted this new analysis was the question of, well, well, what if you're not them, right? And this, this question of ecosystem defense, in fact, is far more important to a far greater number of players who feel impinged upon by these kinds of giants. So the, the cases in the book, which again, for me, were, you know, were personal cases of discovery, were the miracle of how Wayfair, an online furniture seller, is able to not just defend, but thrive in the face of Amazon's full-on attack in the furniture market. Yeah, tell us about that, Ron, because it is a great example. So here you have an example, which is not winner-takes-all. You have a, a smaller company, more focused Wayfair, actually successfully defending against Amazon. How did they deploy this sort of collective shield, this sort of new partnership philosophy to achieve that remarkable feat? So the key, as you say, is the collective shield. An ecosystem defense is a collective defense. If you're trying to face off against a giant on your own, you're doing it wrong. One of the core concepts in the book is this notion of a value architecture, really understanding not your value proposition, but the elements that you bring together to deliver that value proposition. And from there, you can think about the activities that you undertake, that your partners undertake to deliver that value. And it's this value architecture that is the clue for how to defend. Because what it allows you to do is it allows you to think about, well, where is it that things are becoming generic and there's no great point in investing against it? So Wayfair competing with brick and mortar shops 
felt that they had a great advantage in selection and logistics. Okay, Amazon coming into the game means that selection and logistics, you know, are table stakes, right? You may have a warehouse, they have now a cargo airline. So the question is, what else can you enhance within that architecture? And if you have that language collectively within the organization, you can begin to think about how you invest not just in your own capabilities, digital AI, et cetera, but how you invest in and with partners. And part of what Wayfair did masterfully was they found ways of upskilling the furniture suppliers who are generally less sophisticated firms. And by investing in the partners' capabilities, were able to pull in capabilities and value propositions themselves. So for example, rather than focusing on just selection, they were able to move to how you deliberate a choice of you know, what kind of furniture you want. How do you define your own design styles and open up these new horizons that it's not that Amazon can't match. It's just a lot harder for Amazon to focus on that, right? And so essentially this notion of a value architecture is a way of articulating your theory of your own differentiation. So what I'm taking away from that, Ron, is relative to traditional strategy, more focus on collective strategy, collaboration, and also perhaps more mutualism, you know, thinking about not just what's good for you, but what's good for your partners, which is good for you. Would that be fair? Right. And, and part of that mutualism is disciplining your own sense of how central you are and your own ambition to make sure that you're not discovering adjacencies that are, in fact, in the back or even the front yard of your partners. So carrying on with the mental toolkit, if you like, in relation to partners, it's not all love and harmony, you suggest, because there's this phenomenon called value inversion. Tell us about value inversion and tell us what you can do about that. So the notion of value inversion, which actually comes up in chapter one, which, by the way, I'd invite everybody to read, is a recognition that partner relationships aren't constant, right? So, you know, at this point in the strategy discussion, it's you know, everyone knows to talk about co-opetition and everyone knows the difference between substitutes and complements. And the idea behind value inversion is to recognize that sometimes your complementers who are defined by the fact that as they get better, your outcomes improve, they can get to a point where they essentially get too good. And this is the big contrast between the technology-based disruption story, a la Clay Christensen, where a substitute threat starts off as not good enough and then it gets good enough and now it's a threat, right? So like the discount airlines coming in after the service airlines, the mini mills coming after the steel mills were the classic examples. And you needed a certain radar in place to defend against those. Value inversion is what happens when complementers who initially are great for you, like if you're Kodak and you're focusing on printing photographs, the fact that screens were getting better and better on cameras meant more people were taking better pictures. That was good for you initially. But at some point, these screens get cheap enough and good enough and ubiquitous enough that they substitute for printing. So the screen that starts off as a complement begins to undermine the value of the core offer. And this is this notion of value inversion, that some complementers, as they get better and better, you're always in a good place. And others, there's a threat that they become too good. And there are tools for thinking about when you cross that threshold. And if you see that happening or that possibility happening, how do you think about responding to that? Well, the very first thing is you need to be in position to see it before it happens, right? And, and that's where I'll claim it is actually quite possible to do that. And there's a set of ideas that I talk about, about how to envision those different scenarios. But once you see that, then you know to respond. 
Right. Now, there are different ways to respond. Right. You can say, oh, you know, maybe I can stop them or maybe I embrace them or maybe I go somewhere else. The right response will depend both on the situation and on the firm own ability to respond. The key in all of this, both in this book and in Wide Lens, is to be able to see what's coming before it hits you, right, which is the whole name of the game in strategy. It's future planning to be able to respond in something in advance of real time. It's the real time adjustments that are so costly. Another interesting aspect of your mental talk, it seems to me, is the things you have to say about timing. And you talk about the right sequence of development of an ecosystem, and you talk about the logic of an ecosystem cycle. And also you talk about diseconomies of time compression, by which I think you mean it's a problem if you're too early with a proposition with an ecosystem. So tell us a little bit about the, the special flavor of thinking about timing with ecosystem strategy. That's a great question. In a standard industry context, we always want to be first to market with the right thing. Whereas in an ecosystem where you're reliant on others, being first ahead of your partners may garner no prize at all, right? Essentially, the risk is being running to be first to the starting line and then waiting for the race to begin. Now, the interesting nuance here is as you're thinking about ecosystems, then you have to think about not just what you're doing in your ecosystem, but the race against potential progress in the old ecosystem. And this other question, which is, but if you have the vision early, what do you do? And here, their question is, what are the kinds of assets that might be worth investing in as you're waiting on the starting line? Right? And these are assets that are subject to the notion of time compression diseconomies. There are some things that if you try to rush them, it gets harder and harder and more expensive to accumulate them quickly. And at the same time, there's this notion that I introduced called the, the halftime of relevance. There are some things that as you sit on them, they become less relevant over time. So what you want to do is invest in resources that are subject to time compression diseconomies and avoid the resources that as you're sitting on them, will disintegrate. There's kind of very interesting questions about, in the context of self-driving cars, for example, who's doing what to create a position for something that we know won't be ready for years to come anyway. So let's think about a very common dilemma that I think we see playing out a lot, which is what you call the ecosystem trap, the ego trap. I think when naturally, if one's thinking about ecosystems, one imagines oneself at the center of the universe, the orchestrator of the ecosystem. But arithmetically, not everybody can be the orchestrator. So when would you know that it makes sense to be the orchestrator? When should you instead aim to be a complementer or a smart follower? And how can you be successful in that apparently less glamorous role? Even though we celebrate the ecosystem leaders, as you say, necessarily we need to have more followers than leaders. And so what's critical in the conversation is to know, well, when is it that you're a reasonable candidate? You never guarantee leadership, but when, when are you a reasonable candidate? And the answer to that is, you're a candidate for leadership when you have a credible reason to believe that other people who may want to be leaders would look to you and say, well, I'd rather be the leader, but I'm better off being a follower. Like it's the followers that make the leader. And in that sense, the followers have a huge amount of power early in the game because they dictate who the leader will be. And this is what I talk about in this context of the difference between just followership and smart followership. Smart followers know how to use the fact that they have this leverage early on to shape the governance, shape the behavior. And even though in general, you know, the leaders get the bigger prize, they also tend to make the bigger investments. So a smart follower will maybe make less, but they can invest a lot less. And so the return on investment for a smart followership can be incredibly attractive. Attributes typically confer on you the right to be 
a leader candidate? Is it the strength of the brand or digital skills? Or what, what sort of things in today's world typically confer that advantage? It's interesting because I don't think there's a generic list for this, which is why you can see incumbents do this successfully and incumbents fail massively. You know, the example that I, I talk about at the start of this fifth chapter is how Apple, despite being a tremendous leader for the value proposition of devices that let you access data, right? That's why it's important to define an ecosystem around a value proposition. Apple has been far less successful in leading in healthcare, in payments, in education, in video. I mean, it's a very long list of ecosystems where even though it's Apple and even though it's the same core technology, they have been unsuccessful ecosystem leaders. And the same thing is true of startups. We have many examples of startups that have succeeded, many examples of startups that have failed. So the litmus test questions required really are about how do you foster followership? What assets do you have to bring to the game? What strategy do you have? And so I would say in that regard, strategy and ecosystems is a more sophisticated strategy than not to belittle how hard it is to be successful in industries, but this is taking us to a new level of, of the strategy game. At the very end of your book, you, you touch on looking at social problems or nonprofit ecosystems. I don't think ecosystems are spread as much to that space yet, but you, you seem to see potential there. Is this new architecture that we have of the multi-company or the multi-entity ecosystem, you think it's applicable to some of our major common problems and in the public sector? Yeah, no, I, I think whether the language and the theory has gone there or not, that's where they are living. In this moment in time, where we're dealing with COVID, you know, COVID is an ecosystem disruption, right? A standard healthcare disruption is handled by the healthcare system. It's a virus. You're supposed to fix it at a hospital. This is a disruption that has gone across the boxes of healthcare, security, international relations, trade, et cetera. Responding to it requires a similar kind of ecosystem strategy, right? We can't fix it out of the single box. And if you think about the big issues facing us, whether it's, you know, environment used to be about smoke coming out of smokestack. Today, it's cities underwater and California on fire. The kinds of strategies required for solving these kinds of disruptions are the same, whether it's the for-profit, the non-profit, the government sector, they have to go across the boxes. And again, effectiveness in those strategies requires, I think, the, the kinds of tools that are introduced in, in this body of work. So I'm putting myself in the position of a CEO of a traditional industry, one that still believes in industries and, and products, looking to make a switch to this new way of thinking. And I've got a couple of questions relating to that. So one of them is, you know, relative to a traditional strategic planning process, what are the organizing structures and processes to, to think in this way? Can you basically run this thinking through a traditional planning process, or do you also require a different construct internally? No, I think it's critical to have a different construct internally. And it's funny, I think there are very few CEOs today that are comfortable saying we're a product company, right? Everyone is trying to move from products to solutions because they know how tenuous a product position is. And so we're already seeing lots of traditional companies pushing in this direction with greater or lesser effectiveness, right? That's actually, there's a case in the book about Asa Avloy that I actually put in specifically. So this is an incredible story. 100 plus year old manufacturer of locks and keys, pure mechanics, bending metal, grinding gears that's transformed itself as first a company owned under private equity and then in the public markets, you know, into a digital player that's a guardian of identity. Now, what's required for that is more than just vision at the leadership level, by the way. It's more than ambition. 
right? What's required is a pathway going forward. And that's where the traditional strategy process, the traditional planning process is entirely inadequate. So I think that's a great example, Ron. But if I want to exhibit those behaviors, the ones you talked about for Ursa Abloy, how do I need to stretch my traditional strategy process? How do I need to articulate the, the strategizing process differently? I think there are a couple of different elements that are critical. One is that within your process, you need to be really clear about where it is that you're looking at initiatives that require this ecosystem thinking and where not. And where you do, which is largely where you're trying to develop a new value proposition, you need to incorporate into your internal metrics and internal requirements an approach to partners. You need to embrace the fact that the timing of success will look different. What happens in a lot of large companies is there's no shortfall of support for these type of ideas. There's no lack of a number of ideas. What there is a shortfall of is commitment. Because according to the traditional metrics, when things take too long, well, then we lose confidence in that and we move on to the next thing. So one of the, the big things that we need to do is actually move away from this notion of, oh, innovation is exploration. Let's make a lot of bets and see what works out. To work in this kind of environment, which requires a longer horizon, which requires more collaboration, leadership means that you stand while things are coming together. You need more commitment. And that requires a number of different things. It requires real belief in a strategy. It requires an ability to communicate within your organization about what underlies that strategy and why it makes sense to stick with it. And in some ways, I think that's the kind of, for me, the, the most important use of this book is it's not just to come up with better strategy using these analytic tools, but it's to use these tools as a, as a language of communicating strategy within the organization, because that's the only way in which you can garner commitment both at the top but throughout the organization, that people know what we're working towards. And that's, that's the key to success. You're a professor of strategy, you've written a strategy book, but it seems to me that you're talking about more than strategy as traditionally defined. You're talking about a different way of thinking, a different way of acting, a different way of organizing, a different way of seeing the world. So it's, it's more like an enterprise strategizing system or enterprise operating system than it is the intellectual discipline of developing a plan, would that, would that be fair? Yes, no, that's 100% correct. And you know, it's interesting, if you think about the supply chain revolution, which required all kinds of new processes within organizations to deal with external suppliers in a new way, that's a baby version of what we're talking about. So supply chains brought to mind how we deal with external partners, but what you didn't have to worry about was what the structure was. We always knew who was buying and who was selling. We always knew what the final product was gonna look like. It was just a different way of, of slicing and dicing. Within ecosystems, we have that, yes, but now we have all this other stuff, the change in the value proposition, the change in the configuration, you know, the, the notion of roles of leader and follower, and that requires not just change at the strategy level, but as you correctly say, it's the way you run your organization. It's an operating system story. So that's, that's a fairly daunting change agenda, uh, multidimensional. And my final question is putting oneself in the position of a leader in a traditional enterprise, knowing where to start on that agenda. So if you, I mean, supposing the leadership said, yes, we need to be prepared for these sorts of disruptions and we're going to cultivate a different way of thinking and organizing and thinking about partners and strategy. 
How do you think about that as a program? What are the first things that you do? What are the linchpins that you need to put in place in your corporate architecture? Well, you start with actually understanding what your value architecture is. And from there, you can think about what's changing in the environment, which is where are the pressures according to this new perspective of understanding the threats of value inversion. And in parallel, you look at what your menu of internal options look like and begin to prioritize them according to how they fit into this changing environment. From there, the question becomes, how do you move towards not just imagining what that future looks like, but how do you build towards it, right? What is your strategy for ecosystem construction, right? And you know, the language of winning the right game, it's how do you think about your minimum viable ecosystem? How do you think about stage expansion? And the great advantage that large companies have over startups is ecosystems are a partnership game. They're a relationship game and established companies have relationships that startups don't. Established companies should be favored in this game if they can get out of their own way. If they can get their strategy process to embrace the new requirements, they are actually massively advantaged. And by the way, if you look at the big giants today, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, these are not new companies. And every time they succeed in new ecosystems, it's because they're bringing over relationships that they have. And I would say industrial companies are because they have an operation in a very conservative environment, relationships are really precious there. And if they can find a way to leverage those, they have all the reason in the world to think that they'll succeed. Well, thanks very much for sharing your, your thoughts with us, Ron. Very important and, and fascinating topic. I've been talking to Ron Adner, Professor of Strategy at the Tuck School, about his new book, Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend and Deliver in a Changing World, which came out in October from uh, MIT Press. I think an important book for any traditional enterprise to read because it, it really is a different way of thinking about the world of strategy. And I think one that we all need to be on top of. So thanks again, Ron. Oh, thank you, Martin. Appreciate it.